How shall young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to have a few moments of silent prayer to give us the opportunity to uh, focus on the word, make sure that we are in fellowship and ready to uh, ready to study the word. So we'll take a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our fathers, we observe the various events that take place around the world each day, and we hear news that is often very distressing, and as things seem more and more chaotic, we know that we have a sure and certain God who is always faithful, never changing, and one whom we can always rely upon. And Father, we're thankful that for your faithfulness and for the way you have revealed yourself in your word that there is indeed a plan and a purpose in human history, and that you oversee that plan and you will bring things to their uh, correct and righteous end eventually. And in the meantime, it is our responsibility as believers to live out our Christian life, to live in every arena of responsibility of our life to the fullest, glorifying you in every area of our life. Father, we pray as we continue our study in Romans, now as we look upon your plan and purpose for Israel and your faithfulness to the Jewish people, that that might help us to realize how faithful you are to us, even in our times of disobedience and rebellion. And we pray that you might encourage us from your word. In Christ's name, amen. We are in Romans 9, and we're going to look tonight. There's a major doctrine here in in verses 4 and 5 related to the deity of Christ. This is one of those, uh, I would say, one of about five key verses that clearly and profoundly state uh, the deity of, of Christ in the New Testament. We've gone through in the past few weeks a series of background studies to this chapter because often it's important to understand issues before you get into a section because it helps you to understand and think about what it is you're reading in relation to those uh, particular issues. If you're reading an article in an editorial in a journal, or you're going to watch, let's say, a documentary, and you don't know it's controversial, you don't know what the issues are, you don't know the background on the different sides, it's very easy to miss a lot of what is said or what is going on in whatever it is you're reading or the film you're watching or something like that. But if you take time to become educated on the issues before you watch the film or read the book, then what you're watching uh, has a lot more significance for you, and you can watch it with discernment. Same thing is true whenever you're reading Scripture. A lot of people pick up a Bible and they start to read it, but they really have no framework. There's no instruction. There's no comprehension of what the issues are, and unfortunately, they usually start with the first book, 
And if it's a New Testament, they'll start with Matthew, and there's this long genealogy in chapter 1. Or they'll start in Genesis, and they hit long genealogies in Genesis 5 and Genesis uh, 10 and 11. And they don't really understand what this is all about, and they think, oh, this just means nothing to me, and they set the Bible down. There needs to be guidance and direction, and that is why pastors and Bible teachers are provided for, for the local church. But not all Bible teachers or pastors are cut from the same cloth. Not all Bible teachers and pastors really know and understand the Bible. And uh, even training, even formal seminary training, does not guarantee that they know very much. I have certainly seen uh, men who have not had very much Bible training fall by the wayside uh, and get diverted into strange paths. Uh, but I, I've seen that with people with formal training. I've seen it more with those who don't because they don't know enough about the issues, and they usually become somewhat slavishly dependent upon somebody else, and they never learn any to develop any level of critical thinking skills on their own. That's important for all of us, and that's what we do. You know, Everybody starts off in life becoming somewhat dependent upon one or two people who guide them, and they take every opinion that that mentor has as if it's uh, handed down from Mount Sinai. But then as we grow and mature in understanding anything, we read other people and learn other things, and it helps us to be able to self-critique. And we all do. That's how we grow in our knowledge and understanding uh, of anything. Now, Romans 9 to 11 is a critical chapter today. Whether you realize it or not, you are living and you are players in one of the great conflicts in all of the angelic conflict. And that is the battle over, <clears throat> over Israel and the role of the Jewish people, ethnic Jews, in history. And that plays its part, as I pointed out last week, in the whole uh, trajectory of anti-Semitism because part of the role and part of the objective or strategy of Satan is to, uh, since he lost at the cross, is to try to prevent God from being able to fulfill his promises to the Jewish people. And so in much of Christian history, sadly, uh, church historians got off track in the early part of the church age and bought into an allegorical form of interpretation. And later they used, uh, in the early Reformation, a historicist form of interpretation, which means they thought they could uh, <clears throat> see from the uh, things going on in history fulfillment of prophecy in, in their lifetime, and so they misidentified a lot of things, and that caused as, you know, a lot of problems just as uh, allegory did. And it wasn't until the, the, the post, post-Reformation period, so to speak, the late 1500s, early 1600s, that <clears throat> this whole issue of literal hermeneutics or literal interpretation of Scripture began to be consistently developed and applied to every area of Scripture. And it has taken many years, centuries, for that to work itself out in a lot of areas. And it's very important today. I mentioned last week that I was reading a book by a man named Smith. I've now got his last name on more to be desired than their own salvation. 
And this is clearly a book that is, uh, he's a co-moderator for a forum uh, on the Palestinian-Israeli issue in the World Council of Churches. And he definitely specifically states that he is out to defend the view that that Christian Zionism is the polar opposite of Jewish Zionism and is therefore very dangerous. He's brilliant. That always makes someone very dangerous when they write his He's done an incredible amount of research, which means it's a wealth of good information, but you have to watch for all those little points where he, you know, slides his postmodern interpretive framework in, and he uses words like, well, that's the construction of that, that view of history, or we need to recognize how they constructed the narrative, and this term construction and narrative are big buzzwords in postmodernism. Every group has their own narrative, and there's no meta-narrative that's absolute. We would say that the Bible gives us an absolute meta-narrative from God. And that is what everything, what, what we use to inform us of everything. And in postmodernism, there's really no uh, absolute objective meta narrative because in postmodernism, you, you, you can't know truth. There are no absolutes. And of course, that's the core problem is when you make a statement like that, you're uttering an absolute. And so you're saying there are, are no absolutes. Well, is that an absolute? Yes, well, okay, we have one absolute, so that negates your basic assumption. And uh, But nevertheless, this is what governs a lot of modern history. And his agenda, like the agenda of a number of others, is to discredit Bible-believing evangelicals who support Israel. And ground zero for understanding this whole issue of God's plan for Israel, the distinction between Israel and the church, is Romans 9 to 11. Now, we started off with Paul's very personal statement here at the beginning. I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing witness with me in the Holy Spirit. He's saying these things to reinforce that this is uh, his personal conviction and his personal view and that he has great sorrow, in verse 2, great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. He is uh, definitely hurt and harmed uh, by the Jewish rejection of the gospel message that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah prophesied and promised uh, from the Old Testament. And he has been at the heart of this particular battle, and he has won among a long list down through the centuries of Christian leaders who have been uh, libeled and maligned and their positions have been distorted by by those uh, even in the Jewish community, but in most cases in the Gentile community, who have uh, rejected Christianity. And there is a passage in Acts 21 which describes part of the uh, part of the attack upon him, this was when he is on the way uh, way to Jerusalem, and he receives a warning that there are many there who are going to be opposed to him. In verse 19 of Acts 21, we read, when he had greeted them, that is, the leaders in the church there in Jerusalem, when, they, uh, when he had greeted them, he told in detail the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, that is, the leaders, the Jewish leaders of the of the Christian church in Jerusalem, when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, we ha- how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. 
Now, that last phrase is really important because we I addressed this, I think, several weeks ago in Acts, that in, uh, in, in the Jerusalem church, they're zealous for the law, but not as a way of salvation or a way of, of uh, sanctification. This is, they, it's their tradition, it's their history, this is who they are as ethnic Jews. This is why they still worshipped in the, in the temple. It's not because they, had, they, they were adding that to what Christ did, but what Christ had done on the cross made the sacrifices so much more meaningful for them. The temple still stood, and they were still, uh, they were still under the Abrahamic covenant, and so this was important to them, and they were, uh, they're in this transition period. Now, that's one of the things that hasn't always been emphasized and in, in church history. And usually we read their zealous for the law. There's this knee-jerk and wrong reaction saying, oh, well, they were legalists. No, this is a positive statement by the James and the leaders of the Jerusalem church affirming how many Jews had become regenerate Christians believing in Jesus as the Messiah. And they have believed and they're zealous for the law because they believe it's, it's, good, it's still good. That's what Paul said in Romans 7, that the law is good and righteous and holy. He didn't say the law is evil and nasty and you should ignore it. He just says it's not there for your justification or for your sanctification. And then... They go on, the leaders go on to say, but they have been informed about you. So this is the propaganda machine, the big lie against Christianity that's generating the slander against Paul. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Did Paul teach that? Not at all. To forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children. Did he say that? No, he did not, because they they were still under the Abrahamic covenant. Circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It's still in effect today for for the Jews. Just because they are in Christ doesn't negate who they are as uh, as descendants of Abraham. And if that covenant is still in effect, and we believe it is, and that's why we believe it's important for Christians to support Israel, uh, then uh, circumcision is still in effect. In relation to that, but not in relation, doesn't do anything for you to make you more savable, doesn't make you a better Christian, doesn't make you more spiritual. It's just the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. So the big lie said that uh, what Paul did was he told them to forsake Moses, that they should not circumcise their children, nor should they walk according to their customs. Now, notice there's a, that's an important word there because in understanding cultural differences, there are cultural differences. There are ways in which different cultures worship and the ways in which different cultures do things, and it's neither right nor wrong. That's how maybe, that's how certain groups in Africa conduct their services and worship. It has nothing to do with anything, any biblical absolute. And if you're in a, a Chinese church, if you're in a, a Hispanic church, often they do things differently for, right? Some things may be wrong, but generally speaking, there are just cultural distinctives. And as, as this is one of the things that goes on in, in, uh, 
and was going on in the early church. Sometimes it takes place today in Messianic Christian congregations where they their their whole structure is much more like the synagogue than it is the church, not be, but only because that's their framework, that's their background, it's their culture, it's their custom. It doesn't have anything to do with any biblical absolute. So there's nothing in Scripture that says that you start church at a certain time, you sing two hymns, you pray, you take up the offering, you have the sermon, and then you close in prayer. That's not handed down from Mount Sinai, the Mount of Olives, or the throne of God. That is just the cultural way in which English background American churches have developed their order of service. So they did things, and, and Paul was not going after their culture. He was not attacking their 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 customs, and so uh, this became a major issue. And Paul has been much maligned. Let's go back to Romans nine. So he has great sorrow because he has borne the brunt of this rejection and this hostility. We've traced this in our study in Acts on Tuesday night, where he's gone to places like uh, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Derby, Lystra, where crowds. Uh, develop where he is basically run out of town in some places arrested in other places like Philippi he's beaten with rods uh, he's thrown in jail he's run out of town uh, they chase him to the next town like they'll do with this in uh, Thessalonica and uh, these crowds uh, persecute him and in first Corinthians second uh, Corinthians he lists Many of the things that went on, many times he's imprisoned, he's jailed, he's beaten, he's shipwrecked three times. We only know of one from Acts. All of these things happen, and a lot of it is directed from the Jewish community to Paul, and he breaks his heart because he understands that above all things, God sent his son Christ to his people. And his people rejected him. That's John one eight one seventeen. John one eighteen contrasts it. Well known verse says, but as many as received him. See the previous verse in John one seventeen, he came unto his own and his own received him not. That's talking about the Jewish people. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. And so we see this this emphasis of God first to the Jew, and that was Paul's whole methodology was to take the gospel first to a Jewish community and then to the Gentiles. So it has uh, broken his heart to watch the rejection of the promise of God, the Messiah, and all the blessings that would have come with it by the Jewish brethren. And so he then states in a, in a somewhat hyperbolic manner how seriously he takes this. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, uh, my countrymen, according to the flesh. And this word translated accursed is the word anathema, same word that he uses over in Galatians uh, 1.7, when he talks about any, if anyone preaches another gospel uh, that is a gospel of a different kind, let them be accursed. Let them come under the judgment and the condemnation of God. And so he says, I wish I myself were accursed. And if this isn't just a, an Id- idiomatic statement. He is making a statement that is on the border of saying, I would t- give up my personal salvation if my countrymen 
would only turn to the, to the gospel and accept Jesus as their Messiah. He says, I wish I could be accursed from Christ, apa to Christu. This is the Greek. Apa is the preposition of separation, similar to the uh, its synonym ek, and it has to do with severing or separating someone from something. So he says, I wish I were anathema, separated from Christ for my brethren. Here he's talking about ethnic Israel. The point I made a couple of weeks ago is that in this chapter we're talking about God's plan for ethnic Israel. That includes national Israel, but it's a broader term because not all the Jews return to the land or, or make up the nation. Even in the first century, uh, much more than two-thirds of the Jews were not living in the historic Jewish homeland. They were already in the di- diaspora, which began first in 722 B.C. with the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians, and then in 586 B.C. when the southern kingdom was destroyed by the, uh, by the, the uh, Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. So here he's stating very strongly he wished he could be become accursed in place of his brethren. This is the same preposition of substitution used when we talk about Christ died for the ungodly. He died in their place. So that he's using that same preposition for substitution. Then he says, "My again, my countrymen, the brethren are defined as my countrymen according to uh, the flesh. Now, this type of expression of grief in relation to Jewish apostasy toward God is very similar to that that we find among the prophets in the Old Testament. Remember, I told you last week that in in, in uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, I believe it was uh, in, in Ezekiel, mentions that two-thirds of the Jews at the time of the destruction of the temple in 586, two-thirds of the Jews living in, in, in Judah were killed. He says one-third and then later one-third again, and two, that's a comp, you have to combine the two. But this is important because in, the, in Zechariah talks about the fact that two-thirds of the Jews are going to be killed in the Great Tribulation, clearly a different context since Zechariah is... Uh, after um, after the ret- the uh, return from the uh, exile, so uh, we're here. We're going to have uh, we have this um, this same kind of thing is expressed by by Paul. And the reason I make this point is in communicating with and reading issues related to Jews and Christians. One of the things that gets brought up is that. You Christians are really anti-Semitic because you think all the you just want Jesus to come back because so many Jews are going to be killed during the tribulation period, and we need to answer that and be able to answer that by saying that no, we don't believe that. That's not a uniquely Christian belief. That is actually comes out of an Old Testament prophet, and in fact, the Old Testament prophets, which are usually not read by Jews at all. Uh, they're, they're very ignorant of what's in the, the, the Nevi'im portion of the Old Testament, that Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel, Zechariah, these are passages that make very harsh statements of condemnation against their uh, fellow Jews because of their apostasy toward God, which means to fall away from the truth of the Scripture, and their idolatry. 
And because of that, they come under condemnation. And this is expressly stated as to why the northern kingdom was defeated by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom was defeated by the Babylonians. So in Jeremiah 4.19, Jeremiah says, Oh, my soul, my soul. He just cries out in pain. Now, the whole book of Lamentations is like this, but uh, I just picked a couple of examples out of Jeremiah who wrote Lamentations as well. Oh, my soul, my soul, I am pained in my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. So he is expressing his deep distress and grief because the Jewish people in his generation had rejected God. Jeremiah fourteen seventeen. Therefore you shall say this word to them, Let my eyes flow with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people has been broken with a mighty stroke, with a severe, very severe blow. And then in Daniel, Daniel, after he's counted up the time and realizes that the 70 years of exile are, are near the end, Daniel says in Daniel 9, 3, I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. This is no different from the kind of sorrow and grief that Paul is expressing. Paul puts himself in the same place as the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah 35.10 as well as 51.11 mirror each other. 51.11 repeats verbatim Isaiah 35.10, And the ransom to the Lord shall return. This is the future plan of God. After they have been taken out of the land, they under discipline they shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It's the promise that though there is a temporary uh, discipline on Israel, there is a future restoration of the nation, which has not occurred yet. That's not this restoration that's going on now. This is just a prelude to the one that is spoken of by the prophets because that's a worldwide restoration where they have uh, returned in acceptance of the Messiah. Now we come to Romans 9.4, and he identifies his people. The, 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 this verse 4 continues the sentence, they are my brethren, First, he describes them as my countrymen according to the flesh. Secondly, as Israelites, makes it very clear they are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. And these are present for God, the, uh, for, I mean, for the Jewish people. All of these, the service of God, uh, of, of whom, he says in verse 5, of whom are the fathers, that would refer to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, whom are the fathers, and from whom according to the flesh, and that phrase means according to their physical descent, uh, their natural lineage, Christ came. Now, I think it's better, we get a better uh, force of this if we translate Christ as Messiah. According to the flesh, the Messiah came. Jesus is the name of his humanity. Jesus is from the Greek, um, the Greek, or excuse me, Hebrew verb, Yeshua. Joshua is from the same verb, and it means to save or to deliver. And Jesus, as Gabriel announced to Mary, came to save his people from their sins. So he's called Jesus, Yeshua in the Hebrew, uh, Yesu in the Greek. His title is the Messiah. In the Hebrew, that's Hamashiach. 
And in the Greek, it's Christos. That refers to his, his title uh, as his role in history. His, the affirmation of his deity is expressed through the addition of the word Lord, which is simply to identify the fact that he is considered to be God. And so here we have this statement that, that in verses uh, 4 and 5, that the Israelites still possess the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God. Well, in terms of the adoption, this goes back to God's rescue and deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. In Exodus 4.22, God says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. In Exodus 19.6, again, he uh, this is an ex- really an expansion on 4.22, talking about the role of Israel. He says, you shall be a king- to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Uh, these are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. In Jeremiah 31.9, it uses that same verbiage from 4.22, uh, for that uh, I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hosea 11.1 says that in the same way. Uh, when I, Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And so this emphasizes the adoption. Israel as a nation was adopted by God and has a unique role to play among all of the nations. They are to be a kingdom of priests, not just to have a tribe of priests, but the nation of Israel is to the rest of the world what the Levites were to the other uh, 11 tribes of, of Israel. They are, the nation is to be a kingdom of, a kingdom of priests. Then we look at the phrase, the glory. To them pertain the glory. This is often the way in which you had a circumlocution. That just means another way of saying it. Going around to locute something means to speak it, circum to go around. So you're just saying it another way. This is a reference to God's personal presence in the tabernacle and later in the temple. In Exodus 16.10 we read, Now it came to pass... As Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, this is as they were uh, putting together the, uh, uh, getting ready to construct the tabernacle, uh, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. We often recall, refer to this as the Shekinah glory. The word Shekinah uh, does not appear in the Old Testament. The uh, verb form does. The verb is Shekan, which means to dwell. So it refers to the dwelling, the Shekinah actually refers to the dwell, indwelling presence or the dwelling presence of God. Uh, Shekinah is also the word that is used for the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. Uh, and it comes across in Greek as skene, and it actually has cognates in a number of other languages, including, uh, including Russian. All of, all of these other uh, languages that use this word, uh, it has the same meaning, and that is a dwelling place. Exodus twenty four seventeen, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So the glory here is always a reference to uh, to God. So this to the dwelling presence of God, and it relates to the service of God, which took place in the tabernacle and later in the temple. 
the next word that we have is the word diatheke uh, or the covenants that more than one covenant. So we have a little review here for everyone on the covenants. There are eight biblical covenants. There are two theological covenants that have been uh, developed by what is called covenant theology. They don't really have anything to do with the Bible because they're never mentioned in the Bible. They are theological extrapolations that are not based on the text. They're called the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The other day as I was leaving from church on Sunday and driving home, I turned on a KHCB, and I don't know who. Uh, I, I, and Usually at noon I hear um, uh, one of the Baptist preachers, but some covenant theologian was preaching, and he was giving an explanation of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And uh, so I listened to him for a while to find out what he was saying on the way home. But those aren't biblical confidence. Those are theological constructs that were developed in Reformed theology. There are eight biblical covenants, and they are divided between the Gentile covenants and the Jewish covenants. The Gentile covenants all relate to one another, and they grow out of the original creation covenant, which has often been called the Edenic Covenant because this is the agreement or the contract that God made with Adam in the garden before there was ever any sin. This is uh, identified as in, uh, embedded within Genesis 1, 27 to 28, that God was creating man in his image and likeness to rule over the uh, face of the earth, to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea. And so this covenant was broken uh, at the fall. Now, it's never I called a covenant in Scripture, but later on in Hosea, there's a passage that talks about how all mankind broke the covenant with God, that Israel has broken the covenant with God just like Adam broke the covenant with God. So that's a clear indication. Whether it's mankind or Adam, there's a lot of debate over how to translate that. It doesn't really matter in this debate because mankind in Adam broke a covenant, which means that even though Genesis 1 never mentions uh, a covenant, the word covenant, Hosea tells us that, a- that Adam's sin was a breach of a covenant. So uh, that breaks the covenant. Uh, we've studied this in the past. After uh, Adam and Eve sinned, God announces various consequences of their disobedience and that redefines the, the, the issues of the covenant because each of the things God says in relation to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man has something to do with modifying the commandments that God had originally issued to Adam, the woman, and to the animals as being subservient to man in Genesis chapter 1. The flood comes, and again, because it's a different environment, different circumstances, there's another modification of the covenant, and the Noahic covenant's very similar, has similar verbiage, similar mandates, managed to go forth, multiply and fill the earth. Uh, This is clearly spoken of as a covenant, and we're still in or under the Noahic covenant. The sign of the covenant with Noah is the rainbow. And as long as we see a rainbow, we're to remember that God has promised that he will not ever again destroy the earth by flood. 
He will destroy it by fire, but he won't ever again destroy it by flood. It also includes within the Noahic covenant the mandate that whenever a human being sheds the blood of another human being, which means murder, that it is the responsibility of man to take the life of the murderer. And so God himself handed down the mandate to Christian, to believers or unbelievers, it doesn't matter. It is a, it is a creation ordinance for all human beings to execute certain forms of criminals. And when the Supreme Court of the land comes in and, and says that, that we shouldn't execute murderers, or we should do it in ways that delay it for 15, 20, or 30 years. This is a violation of God's covenant. And it's the covenant that we should be reminded of whenever we see the rainbow. This is God's mandate. Uh, the same thing is true when it comes to uh, eating meat. Uh, God says that uh, in the Abrahamic covenant, I mean in the Noahic covenant, that we should now eat meat. Before that, man was vegetarian. But after the flood... Man was to eat meat. Now, many people have different reasons for limiting their intake of red meat, but if you come up with any sort of philosophical or theological rationale for it, it violates the covenant. You may have health issues, digestive issues, uh, whatever it might be that may cause you to not eat very much meat, but if you come up with any kind of a universal principle that vegetarianism is in and of itself superior to any other form of, of uh, dietary philosophy, then you're just dead wrong, and you're in violation of God. And all of these are are are, are in the Noahic Covenant. And so when you see a, a rainbow, you should go out and eat a steak and rejoice in the fact that murderers should be executed and that God is not going to flood us out again. Now, there may be local floods, but no universal flood. Then there are the Jewish covenants. The Jewish covenants are all grounded in the first one, which is the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, which emphasizes God's promise of of a certain piece of real estate in the Middle East, known as Israel, as the possession of the Jewish people for eternity. It's an eternal covenant that there would be a seed or descendants that would be more numerous than the stars of heaven or the sands of the seashore and that they would be a blessing to all people. This is expanded on. The land promise is expanded on in the real estate covenant in Deuteronomy 30 and the seed promise, the Davidic covenant, Second Samuel 7, and the blessing promise expanded in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. Now, there's one temporary Jewish covenant, the Mosaic covenant in Exodus 20 to 40, known as the law, which was designed to be temporary. It wasn't permanent. But the other covenants, the Noahic covenant's eternal, the Abrahamic uh, land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant are all eternal. We've studied the Abrahamic covenant, so I'll give you, put this slide up here. The three elements are land, seed, or blessing. The land promise is developed in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, excuse me, Deuteronomy 30, and it's very clear. God says, this is a covenant other than the one I gave it at Horeb, other than the one I gave at Sinai, which was the Mosaic law. And so in this covenant, God, God, uh, God binds himself 
makes this unilateral agreement to give the land to Israel in perpetuity. It is theirs forever. Now, they don't get to enjoy it unless they're obedient, but it's still theirs. So even when they're out of the land in the Old Testament, they can come back to it because it's still theirs. Whether they're gone 70 years, 700 years, or 1,400 years, or 1,800 years, when they come back, that land is still theirs, and that applies today. That's a biblical argument that every Bible-believing Christian should affirm. That means no Bible-believing Christian should ever take the side of the Palestinians in terms of the major argument. They don't have a right to the land biblically. Now, there are other arguments that need to be developed because there are a lot of people who really don't care about history or the Bible. Uh, The historical argument is that Jews have always lived in the land throughout all of the last 2,000 years. Most were removed, but there have been uh, steady, stable Jewish, uh, Jewish populations within the Promised Land since the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. They were never completely, totally removed uh, from the land. The land is theirs, and they started to return in numbers by the end of the 19th century so that now uh, it's almost reached a point where it's just below half of the Jews in the world live in Israel. It hasn't reached the halfway point yet, but it's very, very close. So this land is theirs historically and biblically, but legally it was granted to the Jewish people as a national homeland by the League of Nations when they affirmed the San Remo resolutions, which were an addendum to the uh, Treaty of Paris at the end of World War I. This was agreed to by 55 member nations of the League of Nations, and when the UN came into power, uh, to replace the League of Nations, part of the UN Charter was that uh, they were to uh, uphold and enforce all treaties that were signed under the auspices of the League of Nations, and they rapidly ignored and forgot San Remo. And so the UN is in violation of international law, and the uh, PLO, the Hamas, uh, are all in violation of international law, And most people in the world are willingly ignorant of international law and just ignore it. Uh, We claim to be people who are law-abiding and law-affirming and a people who who, uh, uh, live by the law, and yet we ignore the law when it's convenient, and that is a major travesty. The Davidic covenant is stated in 2 Samuel 7 when God promises that the Messiah will come through the line of David a royal line, and he will become the uh, king of Israel. Then the new covenant is a promise related to spiritual blessing on the Jewish people when they accept the Messiah, Jesus, as theirs, and this goes into effect when the Messiah comes to establish his kingdom, which will come in the future. So those are the basic covenants Davidic covenant promised an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne to the to this line of David. That culminated in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then we have another statement in verse five related to <clears throat> related to these the, the the covenants, and then we also have the statement of the giving of the law, which is uh, took place at Mount Sinai. 
and then the service of the temple, which relates back to the line that we, uh, or the statement that we read earlier in verse four, the glory that was took place within the temple and within the service uh, in the, of the priesthood in the t- tabernacle and in the temple. And then lastly, the phrase "the promises" relates to these promises that were given in the uh, in the covenants, the promises that God made to, to Abraham that the land would be uh, belong to his descendants forever. So this is the, the Jewish people are then further defined uh, in verse 5 as of whom are the fathers, that is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from whom, that is from the ethnic stock of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from whom the Mashiach, uh, Christ in the Greek, but uh, that reflects the Hebrew term, the Messiah, HaMashiach, uh, from whom Hamashiach according to the flesh. Now, I've retranslated this verse. This isn't the New King James. The New King James reads, of whom are the fathers, from whom according to the flesh, Christ, and then you'll see in your Bible it says Christ came, and that's in italics because there's no word for come. A literal translation following the the word order and the verbiage of the Greek that of of whom are the fathers and from whom the Messiah according to the flesh. So it's an emphasis that the Messiah came according to his humanity, uh, came from Jewish ethnic stock. And then we have this statement that the Messiah is over all and the eternally blessed God. Um, and actually, the way this reads in the Greek is uh, the one who is over all God, or the blessed God, because the adjective comes second. The blessed God, uh, the e- e- eternal. So you could—it's accurately translated. You have two. The adjectives come after the noun, so that that would be accurately translated: the eternally blessed God. But this is a very clear statement that the Messiah, that Christ, is God. Now, you will hear from some people today who are not very clear in their history or their theology. A lot of people don't realize how many, quote, Bible scholars are really antagonistic to the Bible. And a lot of times you'll watch these shows on television about the Bible on the History Channel and uh, uh, some of the other channels, the Discovery Channel, and they they quote a lot of so-called Bible scholars, but they don't believe anything that the Bible says. There's always, they're reconstructing the biblical narrative. They often have uh, people on there who don't even believe that, or they're not really sure if anyone named Jesus actually lived. And yet this flies in the face of, of most of the evidence. There's a lot of evidence that Jesus of Nazareth lived and walked upon the earth. Uh, but if you listen to these extreme liberal theologians, what they claim is that, that these things called the Gospels were really written 100, 200, 300 years. Now, that was a view that was floated back in the 19th century, and it gained ground, and people still repeat it, but modern scholarship doesn't agree with that. In fact, there are a number of liberals and non-Christians who, just on the basis of historical evidence and archaeology, recognize that the Gospels are what they claim to be. They were written uh, within 30 or 40 years of the time of Christ's death, and that um, 
that the events that are described in the New Testament took place historically. There was a man by the name of John A.T. Robinson who published a book called Honest to God back in the early 60s. He was one of the first promoting the so-called death of God theology. But he wrote in another book on the New Testament that all of the books in the New Testament were written uh, before 60 A.D. That's earlier than most traditional Bible scholars would put them. But he looks at the evidence. He says they're, they're from an early time. There's a now dead uh, professor of New Testament at the uh, Hebrew University in Jerusalem who is, is, is Jewish, and he has written several books on the life of Christ, and he, although there are many things that I disagree with about things that he had said, his name is David Fuser, but he clearly states that the Gospels are an accurate historical record of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. You just can't let people get away with saying, oh, you know, those Gospels weren't written when they claimed to have been written. They were just legends that were written down many hundreds of years later. Well, that's somebody who's just repeating something they've heard, or they have an anti-Bible agenda, but they don't know the facts. They may not believe the facts, and there are many people who don't believe the facts, but there are many objective, liberal, anti-Christian scholars who do affirm that the New Testament was written in the first century. They just don't want to believe it. So the Gospels are written very early, and as part of the claim of the Gospels is that Jesus was claimed to be God and was God. That's not something that later church theologians imposed upon Jesus. And in fact, if we go back and we look at the Old Testament, we realize that the prediction from the Old Testament, Old Testament was that the Messiah would not only be human, but would also be God. And I think it's important to have at, at your command two or three verses from the Old Testament to be able to show that the expectation from the prophets of the Old Testament was that when the Messiah came, he was not just a man, he was the God-man. Now, we see this. Here's a chart that in the Old Testament you have two streams of prophecy. One predicts a divine Messiah, and another predicts a human Messiah. And these two streams of prophecy come together in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. The Old Testament clearly uh, articulates a position of a human and divine Messiah. So let me just walk you through two or three of these of these important passages. Let's look first and foremost at Isaiah uh, 7.14. Okay, Isaiah 7.14. Just turn with me. We'll look at two passages in Isaiah, and then I'll mention uh, one in uh, one in Jeremiah and one in Micah. Okay, this is showing that the expectation of Jesus, I mean of the Old Testament, was that the Messiah, who we believe is Jesus, would be fully God. Isaiah chapter 7. Now this is really important. There's two issues that go on in Isaiah 7.14. One is, is this really a messianic prophecy? Now there are some evangelical scholars today that say no, that this was actually a prophecy that was fulfilled by, uh, by Ahaz's son, or by, excuse me, by Isaiah's son. And it really was, was just applied to Jesus much later on. Now, I don't believe that, and they just haven't paid enough attention to their Hebrew text, but that's not accurate. The other view 
uh, is that uh, the other issue is the meaning of this word that's translated virgin. Was it, is it really talking about a virgin or is it just talking about a young lady? And that got a lot of prominence back in the 1950s when the Revised Standard Version was published because they didn't translate Isaiah 7.14 as a virgin will be with child. They translated it a young woman would be with child. And all the evangelicals who got that Bible, all the Bible believers threw their RSV in the trash. And it caused a great stink. Some of you might remember that. And uh, many people, many evangelicals for decades wouldn't touch an RSV because it was, uh, 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 it reflected this apostasy. So let's look at this passage a minute. The context here has to be understood. It is at a time when Ahaz, the king of Judah, he's the king of the southern kingdom at this time, uh, the kingdom of Israel had divided after the death of Solomon into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And they were at war with each other at this particular time. And the king of the northern kingdom uh, was aligning himself uh, with uh, Syria and the traditional enemies of Israel. And so this was, uh, Pekah was the king of Israel at this time, and we read in the first verse that it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it. Now, why is it that the northern kingdom and is, allying, is in alliance with the, with the Syrians? See, just think about today. This would be like everybody up in the north of Israel saying, we're going to ally ourselves with Assad, and we're going to attack Jerusalem. Why in the world would they do that? Well, they wanted to do that because the king in, in Jerusalem was a descendant of David, and they wanted to destroy the house of David. And they wanted to put a puppet king on the throne in Judah to do what they wanted him to do. And they were in hostile to the house of David. That's very important to understand uh, that this is about the, uh, maintaining a, line, a, a, a ruler of, from David on the throne. Remember what the Davidic covenant said? God promised an eternal throne, an eternal dynasty, an eternal house to, to, to David. So all of the kings on the throne of Judah were descendants of David. And now the king that's there is Ahaz, the king in the north, is, is Pekah. And it was told to the house of David. You ought to underline that in your Bible. That's because that's what we're taught, that's what's important here. Is not Ahaz per se, but that Ahaz is the living representative of the house of David. And it was told to the house of David saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. Now Ephraim was one of originally one of Joseph's sons, but it's one of the tribes, and Ephraim was often used as another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. So what they're saying is Syria's forces are deployed in the northern kingdom. And trust me, the northern kingdom, if I was in Jerusalem here, the northern kingdom would be, oh, downtown. See how close we are? That's not that, the border wasn't that far from Jerusalem. It was only 10 or 12 miles away. So this is an immediate hostile military threat. Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods 
are moved with the wind. Now, you've been here during a hurricane. You've watched the trees as they've blown. That means they're shaking in their boots, to put it in a modern American idiom. They are scared to death. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, See, in the midst of chaos, the only certainty we have is the word from God. The Lord says to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz. Have a little uh, meeting with the king. You and take She'er Yashuv, your son, with you. And meet at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. So see the detail there tells us that this isn't just some, you know, nice little story. It's talking about specific locations. It's saying you're going to go meet him at the intersection of Bunker Hill and I-10. So well-known location. It is a specific geographical location. And say to him, verse 4, take heed and be quiet. I always love that God says. First thing, be quiet. Shut up and listen. Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands. Now, what's a firebrand? A firebrand is like a torch. A torch has to flame up, but when the torch is going out, all that's left is glowing embers. It's on its way to being dead, useless, irrelevant. So he calls them uh, smoking firebrands. In other words, they've already exerted all their power and ability. They're nothing to be afraid of. They're just about out of gas, just about burned out. So uh, he says, For the fierce anger of Rezin and Siri and the son of Remaliah, because Siri, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah plotted evil against you. See, because they've plotted evil against the house of David, God, God's going to take care of them. So verse 6, he says, Let us go up against... Uh, this is what the Syrians and the northern kingdom said. Let us go up against Judah and trouble it. Let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. See, they want to set their own king up. They don't, they want to destroy the house of David. This is all about the house of David and the ability of God to fulfill the promise to David to always have a king on the throne in the southern kingdom. And so this is how God responds. It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass, nor that for the head of Syria's Damascus, the head of Damascus is resin. In other words, capital of Syria is Damascus, and the chief power in Damascus still is the capital in Syria, by the way, is, is resin. He says, within 65 years, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, will be broken. 722, they were destroyed by the invasion from Assyria, so that it will not be a people anymore. God's going to wipe that kingdom off the face of the earth. And he says in verse 9, the head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is Ramallah's son, that is Pekah. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. That's his point to, uh, to Ahaz. You need to believe this. So then we come to the prophecy itself, verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, now this is where he makes his command to Ahab. And he says to Ahaz, he says, ask a sign for yourself. So God is not saying, saying, it's not Ahaz generating this. He's not saying, I want a sign like the Pharisees did later on out of their arrogance. God says, ask for a sign. It's okay. You can do it. Ask for a sign. But Ahaz gets a little self-righteous. He says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to ask. Nor will I test the Lord. Well, God just told you to ask for a sign. 
so you're going to disobey him? That's real arrogance. So God's going to get a uh, little irritated with him. Uh, so the word sign here does not necessarily mean something miraculous. It means something that will signify the truth and demonstrate the truth of the prophecy uh, that is about to be made. And so Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then <clears throat> Isaiah says in verse 13 that he there is Isaiah. He says, Hear now, O house of David. He's speaking for the Lord. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but you will weary my God also? You're going to test God's patience? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You won't ask for one, but God's going to give you one anyway. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. In verse 13, he says, he says uh, Hear now, O house of Israel, uh, O house of, uh, of David. See, that's a, that's a group of people, isn't it? Is it a small thing for you all? That's a plural. You should circle that and put a P over it because that's important that this is a plural. Is it a small thing for you all, the house of David, to weary men? But will you all, that's the house of David, will you all weary my God also? And then verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you all a sign. Who's the sign for here? Israel, I mean Judah, or the... House of David, the house of David. That's who's being addressed here. The Lord will give you all, the house of David, a sign. The sign's important because what God's going to show is the house of David isn't going to be snuffed out like the northern kingdom of Israel slash Ephraim or Syria. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this verse is always cited in, at Christmas in relation to the virgin conception and virgin birth. But what I'm pointing out here that's important is the name, Emmanuel. It means God with us. El is the term, Hebrew word for God. Im at the beginning is the preposition with. Anu, that A-N-U, is for the second, uh, first person plural, us. So it means God with us. This is a clear indication that the one from, who's going to descend from the house of David, that's his humanity, is going to be fully God. God with us. Now, we're about out of time. I want to review this briefly next time, and I want to talk about this issue of the virgin, because that's another issue that comes up here. We'll talk about that, and then we'll move through the other four or five verses related to the deity of Christ. This is so important. Why do we believe that, that Jesus is God? Because the Bible says so. It's said so many times in the Old Testament, and it reaffirms it many times in the New Testament. But the deity of the Messiah, notice I didn't say the deity of Jesus, the deity of the Messiah is an Old Testament prophecy. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah because he fulfilled many other prophecies. Therefore, based on the Old Testament prophecies, we believe Jesus is fully God. Now, we believe he's fully God because of many other reasons given in the New Testament, as well as the way he lived and what he did, 
But the foundation isn't a New Testament invention. It came out of the prophecies of the Old Testament. The Jewish prophets predicted a divine human Messiah. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, and we look forward to being able to complete them and to complete our understanding of just who Jesus is, that we might be able to accurately communicate this to those around us. We never know when we're going to get the opportunities to share the gospel and make these things clear, and we need to be prepared. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things in Christ's name. Amen.